This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're about to listen to the 24th episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review for us there. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. In this week's episode, we mainly focus on the Spirit Award nominations. If you need a handy guide to those, you can find them on IndieWire and Thompson on Hollywood. We also dig into films that we think didn't quite get the attention they deserve this season, and now it's a great time to be catching up with all the year and stuff going on, so this is one you might want to listen to all the way through. From all of us at IndieWare, have a happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and an editor here, and I'm joined by Ann Thompson over at Thompson in Hollywood. And, you know, the great thing about this podcast is that when there's not a lot of stuff going on with awards, we can talk about other stuff. But when there is something going on with awards, we have a lot more to talk about. And in this case, we have one very particular set of awards to dig into, which is the nominations for the Spirit Awards, which came out yesterday. And I have to say, and I don't know about you, I've given the Spirits a hard time over the years for not honoring the right kinds of movies, for, for letting the big movies win out, to, for seeming too much like the Oscars. But this is a terrific crop of nominees, maybe the best in years, in my opinion. They definitely bent over backwards, this particular jury. And one of the things they did was to be kind of strict about even if even if the Weinstein Co. wanted Imitation Game to be considered eligible, they decided to give it a pass, you know, as a British film. And they, they you know, in theory of everything, Mr. Turton, they let those go uh, to the side. Unlike the artist, you see, the, the criteria that they have at, at the Spirits is that if it was shot in the U.S., if it has two out of three elements financed in the U.S., distributed in the U.S., even if it's a French movie. You know, right. So all of a sudden, be, the artist you know, swept. So the artist right. took over that year. It, right. it turned out to be the Oscar winner anyway. And so it was such a boring show to have right. everything be exactly the same. And last year, there were four um, actors that were exactly the same in both cases. And so I think, I think for winners, you know, I think this time there's going to be some, you know, divergence, which is more interesting. Well, different people deal with these issues in different ways. You know, the Gotham's for years accidentally would, you know, sort of overpraise the same Oscar movies, like when The Departed won in 2006, because the committee said, well, that seems like an indie film with Scorsese. So they added a clause saying the movies had to be made with an economy of means. And that was sort of, you know, helped the issue along a little bit with the spirits. They also have this cap of $20 million in terms of the budget for which, the film. Which, which, by the way, um, I was just looking up my Birdman uh, story, and, you know, it says it's in the 20s. It's above 20. Well, Birdman. someone will have to do some snooping around, maybe you, to kind of figure out how the math works out there. But Birdman, I think, absolutely belongs in this I agree. I have no so, issue with it. I'm just right. saying they, they bend the rules to suit their purposes, is what you're saying, and I agree with you. Right, it, it, because it just can't be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. There's and su- such a... Catcher's really expensive, so it wasn't eligible, but right. they gave it a prize anyway, which ended up confusing most 
most of us because we thought that, that it was a consolation prize. Well, right. they seem to have wanted to recognize it, even if it was over budget, you right. know. Well, or, you know, it is. Inherent Vice, they were both over $20 million. Right, and it is a movie being released by Sony Pictures Classics, whereas Selma, which is a Paramount release, is nominated for Best Feature. So, you know, I knew they were going to do that. Peter Connect was saying in his uh, walk-up that it wouldn't be eligible, and I thought, yeah, they love Ava DuVernay. Right. It's an independently financed movie. It's under the cap. It's a small-scale movie. That's what that's what worries me about its Oscar chances a little bit, because when the Academy finally does get to see it, they're very... Um, the Academy's very... Um, Tough on low budget films, you know. They 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 have high production value standards, and I think Selma has high production values. But sometimes they don't see things the same way. That's well, it's all. interesting because then you have Boyhood, which is nominated, and that's sort of like a super indie. You know what I mean? So of course it had to be in the Spirits race, but it's also in the Oscar race. So you can't hold that against the Spirits. Not race, at all. Of know? course not. So and it needs the help. Birdman. It needs all the help it can. It can get. So Boyhood and Birdman led the indie spirits as well they should, and you know the right people got nominated, and and everything is is well with with the world. But um, they did not nominate Reese Witherspoon for Wild, and I, I can't help but think um, Wild is liked by some and not by others. But on some level, I think it's perceived that Reese Witherspoon is like I don't know how to explain it. She's a major movie star. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's really hard unless it was somehow she was playing against type in some dramatic way or working. Which she sort of is. Yeah, I guess you could try to make that case, but it's a tough one. In any well, case, it's not I mean, a glossy picture in any way. It's a very independent film. I mean, John Mark Vallee is nothing if not an independent filmmaker. Well, you know, maybe, maybe. very gritty, very authentic, very handheld, very good. no no makeup, no trailer. I mean, she really was doing it the indie way, and I I, I find it interesting that they chose not to recognize her. Well, nobody sees the term indie more malleable than me, and I think any you know, there's no clear definition. But I do think if you dig deeper into this list of nominees in the other categories, you see some really exciting differences in terms of, you know, things that are made on a certain scale versus smaller ones. Uh, David Zellner, for example, being nominated for Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter, which I thought was this really great black comedy of sorts at, at Sundance this year about this uh, 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 Japanese woman played by Rinko Kikuchi who believes the Fargo story about the buried money to be real and goes to Minnesota to find it was just like such a fascinating cinematic experience that almost didn't get distributed this year. Amplify picked it up a couple months back and it still hasn't really been released. You know, to see that in the mix with Inuritu for Birdman and Damien Chazelle for Whiplash, I mean, that to me feels like a more fully realized approach to looking at the year in indie cinema. And then you look at the best first feature with A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and Dear White People and Night Club. Well, that category is always usually pretty pretty indie. And, yeah, but and then so there's on. also, you know, She's Lost Control from Anya Markhart, which I thought was this really fascinating story about a sex surrogate in New York City, which premiered in Berlin this year. It was at South by Southwest. Still has not been released, so they're obviously more flexible at how they, how they consider these things. But also, nobody would know about this movie if it wasn't in this category, and it absolutely belongs there. So this is where I think these kinds of awards can make such a difference, because they're actually making a statement about the broader landscape for independent film that the Oscars, as, as you alluded to before, just can't do. I mean, the best first screenplay, you have 
Desiree Akaman for appropriate behavior about this Persian-American woman who lives in Brooklyn. You I know, love it. It's a really enjoyable movie that, again, nobody's really been talking about. So you know. Well, I'm delighted to see Tilda Swinton in the mix because um, it was interesting to me. It seems so long ago. I, I, there's an interesting trend which is occurring here in in, in independent distribution where um, a distributor will make it, you know, they'll show a movie at Cannes or they'll pick up a movie at Cannes like Only Lovers Left Alive with Jim Jarmusch, right? Which is one of my favorite movies. Sure. But it seems so long ago that I first came became aware of it. It was not this Cannes. It was a year ago Cannes. And then they, but it, it, it was released in 2014. Sure. It is, in fact one of the films that critics could champion if they so choose. And and Tilda Swinton is extraordinary in it, and she's wonderful in Snowpiercer, and she's wonderful in Grand Budapest Hotel. What if she could get nominated, you know? That would be wonderful for that kind of uh, heightened awareness to occur on her behalf. Right. No, it's, it's true. I mean, it, it, you know, Tilda's performance in Snowpiercer and Snowpiercer itself those are not the that, that's not not the kind of variables that tend to figure into year end conversations because they're so eccentric in a way. Except when critics sort of come around and recognize. Well, this is what I'm hoping, and this is what I'm and I've been going through the categories, and there are very weak supporting categories, for example, and I've been just sort of trying. Like Obvious Child is another one that got a nice boost. Dear White People got a nice boost. Um, you know, it would be fun to see some of, you know, some of these movies get some attention from critics. That's what would I, I would like to see happen. Well, it'll be interesting. Maybe. And Nightcrawler got a big boost, yeah. too. I mean, and as as it should. I mean, in terms of critical boost, we'll know about that soon enough. I mean, I'm in the New York Film Critics Circle, and we're voting early Monday so, you know, it's there are so many different variables in play here, but I think the most important one is that even though critics make a living watching movies throughout the year, everybody has blind spots. It's really hard to keep track of all these different movies, and that is, I think, something that has a major impact on how these kinds of voting systems play out. Because I know. It's too know. bad, too, because I was talking to... If there isn't some... If Weinstein Co. isn't, like, pushing tracks and Mia Wasikowska, and John Anderson or whoever is in your group hasn't seen it, and there's no, tr there's no screener, then it doesn't get seen. It's that simple. Right. And uh, even more than that, I mean, you have some, some critics who, you know, if they're writing for a print publication, they review maybe one or two movies a week, you know, they kind of get stuck in a cycle in which, you know, the marketing has the upper hand, you know, whatever's being thrust in front of them is going to sort of have sort of the most attention for them in the moment. And so, you know, critics, just as much as anybody else, do fall prey to these false season marketing campaigns. And it's harder to bring movies back into the conversation or to talk about movies that may have been a discovery at a festival six, eight months ago and then quietly came out in theaters. You know, I, I have high hopes for A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I thought was just, you know, brilliant discovery at Sundance this year, this Persian vampire story of sorts. Uh, but uh, even though it did pretty well in theaters, you know, I don't know how many critics really have been seeing it and talking about it. I think what's it. dismaying about the way that the New York film critics often behave is that they say they 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 say that they don't have any concerns about playing a role in the Oscar race, that it's really about rewarding the best films of the year, and then they try to be earlier than everyone else so that they're votes are, are actually uh, going to register with the Academy. Now, this year, where you do have a weak field of, of Best Picture contenders and some of the later films that are coming in are disappointing, 
it is a very good year for the critics to go back and look over all their lists and come up with something for the Academy voters to think about that, that isn't in this late year mix. No, I mean, look, first of all, in defense of the New York Film Critics Circle, of which I am a member, you're talking about journalists. So, you know, everybody's thinking about how can we get our exclusive? And so being first is kind of nice, and it's the oldest organization of its sort. So as long as is, you've seen everything. Right. So that, I mean, but that is That's a challenge. That's an issue. It how is... many people have seen Selma? How many people have seen um, Unbroken? That's well, the one. I mean, most... I'm seeing it this coming weekend. That's, but, right. but that's you know, members... that's right under the wire, right? right? It is, absolutely. And last year it was the same situation with Wolf of Wall Street. But, you know, you're also dealing with a situation where, you know, the overload makes it really hard for edgy movies to stand out. And that's not only a problem for critics. I think it's just it's a problem for the indie world in general, for the industry, you know, for people who need to release a certain number of movies in the year. And then they take on too many and they have to dump certain things at a certain point in time. I've been going through our critics poll to put together my different list for the best movies of the year, best director, best cinematography, best editing. And I yeah. have a long list of movies that I love throughout yeah. the year. And I, I'm trying to eat, put a different set of movies in each list just so I can spread the love. But even then, it's really hard for me to fit in everything I like. So something gets left out, and then it turns out that that's the important thing that, you know, with that sort of boost could have a different sort of life. And so that, but honestly, I find that kind of, exactly what makes this profession so vital and interesting and if anything it just makes us work harder i'm not saying that the results for the new york film critic circle are going to be perfect but i think that one thing that it seems to be happening is that there's a burgeoning awareness of how dense this marketplace is and i have high hopes that people are going to get better at recognizing smaller movies also because you know the just the the kind of mainstream stuff that we're sifting through is just not always that strong. There's not like a ton of great studio movies this year to pour over, and, and instead people are looking at the indie films. And so that creates this narrative. You know, we our, our colleague Shipper sent us this piece from The Atlantic that said, you know, the, the, the indie film world is being Oscarized, you know. And it, it sort of positioned it in, in, in a, as if this was like a problem. But to me, it's like, you know, this is, this is a real opportunity for a lot of really strong movies to, to stand out in an environment where, you know, a couple of years ago, nobody would even know they existed. So maybe I'm it's just possible. an idealist. It's possible, and I'm curious to see how your conversation goes. I mean, I finally discovered the Skeleton Twins on my uh, screener, you know, and I, I really enjoyed that movie. That was a discovery for me. I never saw it, and uh, it was a minor uh, art house uh, success, but uh, I was I was quite pleased, and, although it got completely overlooked by the... Uh, by the uh, Spirits. By the spirits. Now, the other thing that I'm finding interesting as I was going over the list of, of all the releases is that there's a change in in the in the way that people it used to be before they changed the rules the oscar rules for foreign it used to be that it was in the interest of the distributor to have the fewest number of potential oscar voters as possible to see <laughs> their film and they would wait until the new year and open it you know right before the nominations and and so you have still there's an old habit left alive where you've got all of these films that were basically 
qualified into you know but but didn't get released until this year and so if you i was thinking about this there are all these films that i loved like the lunchbox or which was not the indian submission last year or uh you know that, that were not opened until this year but there's no point in voting voting for them they're not in the running they're not eligible for anything and i think the distributors are finally figuring out now that everybody there's a bigger group uh, of people uh voting um that they they're it's in their interest to open them the, the year of so that people can can get, get get behind them and give them some attention. Does that make any sense? Do you follow what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, everybody needs something to celebrate, to advocate for. And if you hide these things in this very, you know, sly fashion, just to kind of toy with the rules, as a result, you're underexposing something that could actually benefit from the exposure. Now, if you have something that you don't think is going to play that well, or is really going to divide people, I guess maybe there's a different sort of strategy in play there. But look, I'm all about the more transparency, the better. Let people see stuff and get people talking about stuff as much as possible. I mean, you see how Grand Budapest Hotel is sneaking back into the race, the fact that boyhood has held on for so long. I mean, I think these things should tell people that a great movie has legs, or at least it should. You know, and, and well, it Grand really, Budapest will come back. Yeah, it, it is. It, I, in fact, just got a, a screener from Fox. They, they seem to be circulating those right now. So, you know, and, and it's a movie that people really like. People really respect Wes Anderson. So there's no reason why opening that movie in March sort of took it out of the equation in some fashion. You know, and well, let me a, ask you this. I have a couple questions for you, just in terms of what you think the film, the New York film critics will do. Okay, I just right. want to throw just, a, just a few Just don't get things. me in trouble because there's a lot of bylaws going back to the 30s. No, <laughs> you're you're not. You're just, you're just, this is just your humble opinion. You know, I, I I just I'm just. This is more about what is the flavor of, of what New York film critics are likely to like. You know, like for example, do you think that? The Weekend has a chance, or Nymphomaniac 1 and 2, which is going to be on my 10 best list. I'm warning you now. Um, well, or something like Under the Skin, you know? Under the Skin, there, there's a possibility for those sort of things. Under the Skin, maybe for Actress or something like that. I mean, one thing that got I, a foreign nomination from, uh, from the Spirits. Right, but I mean, one thing you have to keep in mind is that you're dealing with a, a voting body of more than 30 people. It's sort of contingent on Largely who male and middle-aged. Okay, we're white. working on changing that. Give me, give me a couple of years. You're young, <laughs> you're young. <laughs> well, it's not just me. And we got, we got a lot of interesting new members. Wesley Morris joined this year. Scott Foundis. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not just that the rules have changed. You know, there's a better representation of the online ecosystem as a whole and um, just different kinds of sensibilities. A lot of people who do actually go to festivals and so forth, which helps. Uh, but what I will say is that you're dealing with a group of people, over, th over 30 people, assuming they all show up or vote by proxy. Um, and it's really hard for a sort of outsider pick to get some sort of consensus behind That's it. That's the problem. That's unless true. There's a lot of division around certain other kinds of movies. I don't want to go into too much detail, but you can look at sort of the some some of the stranger outcomes that have happened with the New York Film Critics Circle last year, like American Hustle winning Best Picture, but Steve McQueen winning Best Director, or a couple years before that when um, uh, to the Terrence Davies film uh, won. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's called uh, Deep Blue Sea. Won for um, Rachel Weisz. For actress, you know, these sort of things where it's, people are sort of wondering, well, what happened there? Well, what happened there was that it's really hard to reach consensus on something. And so something smaller that received maybe lesser votes, but still substantial minority 
winds up coming up to the top. So there is a possibility of some surprises there. And the movies you mentioned are definitely in the mix in that respect. What about um, Locke? Locke is a, that's a hard one, I think, because that, that is not a universally beloved film. You know, it's, it is Tom Hardy's great role, and he certainly carries it. Personally, I have some issues with it. I think it's sort of redundant in times. I didn't always feel the suspense as, as tightly as, as it seemed like that movie was trying to imbue. This is the film that's shot entirely as if it were, it's sort of like Birdman in a yeah. way. It's, it's, it's well, supposedly all one, one car ride. Right, or lifeboat or something. I mean, yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah. He's just in the car the whole time talking on a head, headset. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It did, I wasn't wowed by it the way that I think you were and some other people, but... It, you never really know because it, it's definitely the kind of movie you could see on some lists, maybe not being number one in every case, but if it's number two or number three, that can make a difference as it can make a difference in the NDR critics poll and the other critics polls that are being done now. So, now, do you think that the film critics are more likely to go for Lego movie or Dragon or Big Hero 6 as opposed to Tale of Princess Kaguya? In terms of the animation stuff, it's my feeling is that most people favor Princess Kaguya, but I actually have a DVD for that and plan to watch it over my Thanksgiving break, so I can't say really without, you know, with too much authority, but we talked about this before. My, my feeling is that, you know, generally a lot of people of a certain age are going to gravitate towards what seems like the more mature option, and that and this seems to be the one in this case. Uh, but that's you know without seeing it, and I know that you know. It's a it's question not... of what people feel about two um, D. I mean, it's it's beautiful two D, which I talked about, but but it, it's well, uh, I mean, that's part I mean, of the issue. I yeah. could see so I could see a bunch of guys going for Lego Movie, you know, as the more it, it, which in its way was quite. Uh, radical and and not the way you know it doesn't look or sound or feel like a, a standard animated film and i know a lot of women who like that movie too let me just say <laughs> but and I, I think it's funny in including part me yeah yeah and and the sequel is supposedly very female centric from what i've been reading so i, I mean I, you know one can I, hope I don't know. I mean, I, I'd also like to see the new Bill Plimpton movie that opened Slamdance this year. You know, that there's, there's always more to this story than whatever seems to be at the top, which means there are possibilities of, of certain surprises taking place. And one way or the other, what I like about all this stuff is that when we get away from it, I think there is still this narrative with, that, you know, no single critic mandated this list, which is totally spot on. And so we all get to go home and be critics and continue to have different opinions about things and express our, the way that we really feel. And I think that's very different from, say, something like Oscar season, where it is very hard to get a sense for what a lot of these people actually think about how things are turning out. Part of it what, is political. What's going to happen, though, I think, what's what always happens is that what the critics contribute to and can contribute, and sometimes there's splits and sometimes things go different ways, but what starts to happen is that one actress, let's say Julianne Moore this year, or, or one supporting actor, let's say J.K. Simmons, or... Um, one documentary, let's say Citizen Four, just gets the win again and again and again, and then the snowball just becomes so overwhelming that it becomes inevitable. Sure, and that means that everybody's going to hate whatever ends up winning in those particular areas by the time it happens, but, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you have to recognize how ephemeral this stuff is, and we're talking about movies that if they're really great, 
they're going to live in all kinds of different ways beyond all the award season hype. And so, you know, for me, it's I'm just excited when there are things that are in the mix that could, you know, somehow benefit from that exposure so that we continue to have sort of institutional reasons to talk about them um, that allows them to be remembered. You know, a movie like Boyhood could have been seen as this sort of weird experimental side dish to the rest of Linklater's career. Instead, it, it is starting to become his crowning achievement. And this narrative around sort of how Oscar season is relating to it, I think is sort of, you know, finalizing all of that. And the same thing with like, even something like Birdman, you know, I think what could have been seen as a, this very eccentric kind of flying off the rails, wannabe auteur sort of thing. But award season is allowing us to treat it as a much more special, different kind of project. And so I would say, though, that the reason the two of them are succeeding as well as they are is because people see them, recognize them as films that they can actually relate to and, and make them feel things and, you know, admire for their extraordinary, uh, unique, uh, uh, artistic, uh, expression because no one else has ever made movies like them. And that, that is, that is the big, you know, there's the, the two sides of it. You have to coexist in order for the films to be successful. No, that, that's absolutely true. And, and one of the other things uh, on that note that I find gratifying in sort of a backwards way about the end of the year is that I tend to go back to my list and figure out, you know, what, what did I really love that nobody's talking about? Because to me, it's all part of the same conversation. And, you know, when we what talk would about that movies, be? well, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, everything from the Palm Noir winner at Cannes this year, Winter Sleep, which is opening in a couple of weeks. It uh, wasn't a New York Film Festival. It's been largely forgotten or not seen by a lot of American it's critics. It's long and it's, uh, you know, uh, stately. <laughs> sure, you know, but but so are a lot of great things. To, to, to put a finer point on it, it's, it's very theatrical and it's challenging in certain ways for people. But, um, you know, it's, it's still worthy of as much of a conversation, I would say, as, as a movie like Boyhood or, or, or Birdman and will never have that, that piece of the pie. And so, you know, the interesting challenge for me is to go back and find those examples and figure out, you know, is there a way that we can sort of continue to talk about these on on some fraction of the same level as these other films? I mean, other examples would be Closed Curtain, which is Jafar Panahi's sort of meta diary film about living under house arrest, which is also kind of this really fascinating drama about a criminal on the run. Um, and another Iranian film called Manuscripts Don't Burn. Uh, the British uh, filmmaker Joanna Hogg made, made a movie called Exhibition, which is brilliant and, and was released very, and on, on, I think, just a handful of screens by Kino Lorber earlier this year. But uh, just a really beautiful movie about this woman who lives in this ginormous home and, is, and feels sort of trapped by the architecture around her. And um, these are the films that, to me, I think actually, you know, make film culture interesting because they show, you know, the, the sheer range of possibilities that are outside of everything that we're talking about. So what's exciting for me is when award season both allows us to talk about a couple of things that are challenging the medium or giving us something different and also an excuse for us to push against those boundaries and look and see what else is there. So, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to watch Princess Kaguya over the weekend. I still need to see The Salt of the Earth. But for me, it's That's it's fantastic. Of, You've got to see that. And yep. the other movie I loved was Better Angels, which very few people have seen. Um, 
And then there's some, then there's some studio stuff that are like, you know, I think are just superb movies, you know, just on the anti-pretentious side, things like Guardians of the Galaxy and, and Maleficent and Edge of Tomorrow. These are some of my favorites on the, on the big, on the big budget side of the equation. Yeah, I mean, there's always a couple interesting examples. I have to tell you, you you know, you may never want to record a podcast with me again, but I totally love Dumb and Dumber Two, which no. uh, I got around to seeing. I mean, you gotta, many, you'd have to, you'd have to shoot me to get me to see that. Yeah, well, that's what I say. How many people, you know, in our arena actually committed to it? I mean, I, I, I just thought it was so entertaining. I mean, it was just, it, it takes a certain kind of creative finesse to write really dumb dialogue that's actually funny. <laughs> so, you know, it worked for uh, Martin and Oh, and Lewis. I liked Dawn of Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah, yeah that was a really good one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I'm not discounting the stuff that's done on a big scale, you know, and I, I try to avoid grading on a curve when necessary, but the reality is that that kind of work is always going to be inherently, inherently limited in certain ways, and there's a lot of other stuff that doesn't have those limitations or it has different kinds of limitations and the results are, are different. So I guess sort of dovetailing into the fact that we're about to go on holiday for a couple of days here, as far as the whole Thanksgiving spirit goes, I'm just thankful for how much we have to talk about. You know, this is just in some ways the most complicated uh, environment for discussing, processing, promoting movies uh, in the history of the medium. And so it's just a great time to be doing this work. Happy to be part of it. And right. also looking forward, I'm in a very good mood today. I realize that I'm quite cheerful. <laughs> Let's keep it <laughs> up. I'm going to get some days off. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> well, when we reconvene next week, we'll, we'll try to keep the mood light as well. There's no reason why we need a holiday as an excuse. So enjoy your turkey, and You we'll too. See you soon. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.